0: Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins.
1: All right, welcome back to another episode here on the MedTech Town Lab podcast. I'm your host Mitch Robbins, the founder and managing director here at the Anthony Mike Group, helping companies and professionals build high-performing teams and careers across the U.S. MedTech industry. Joining me today is none other than Mr. Anthony Watson, who is the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Quality at Wingap Medical. Now, Tony comes to the show today with almost 30 years of experience in the greater life sciences industry. Prior to working on the industry side, he spent almost 20. Years working for the FDA, where prior to resigning he was the director for the division of anesthesiology, general hospital, infection control, and dental services. If you can't tell already, Tony has a tremendous breadth of experience working for companies like Sanofi, Biogen, Paratherapeutics, and of course now Windgap Medical. He's been at the forefront of the development of FDA emerging technology, global regulatory schemes affecting the evolution of regulated combination products, SAMD products, and human factors. And he's an expert when it comes to building new regulatory teams, defining problems, and finding optimal solutions. Tony holds his Bachelor's of Science in Engineering from the United States Naval Academy and both his master's in management information systems and MBA from the University of Maryland Global Campus. Now, for those unfamiliar with Windgap Medical, the company was established in 2011 and since then has been revolutionizing drug delivery services and the medicine they contain to create simple, safe, and stable solutions for today's most concerning health conditions. With over 100 issued patents, Windgap seeks to improve the lives of patients with life threatening allergies, diabetes, opioid addictions, and cyanide exposure and more. Without further ado, Tony, welcome to the show, man.
2: Thank you, Mitch. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Yeah, likewise. We've been kind of chit-chatting back and forth offline uh, for quite some time. And I'm fi- I'm glad that the day uh, has finally come for us to get together and do this episode. You know, I mentioned just the breadth of experience that you have and that you work for the FDA, you've worked for industry. I can't wait to get into all of it. But like so many other episodes that we've done uh, with leaders like yourself, I think to kind of come to present day, we got to go all the way back in time and understand kind of where this all started. And so I'd love to know, and so would the audience, uh, what your formative years were like, where you grew up, what family life was like, et cetera.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So I would say that uh, my early years, my father was in the military. He was an army officer. Um, So we moved around a lot when I was very young. I had a very loving family. I had great parents uh, who uh, were strict in their own way. Uh, They were very, they didn't abide bad grades, even though occasionally I had (laughs) violated that one. And they were all about making sure that we uh, treated people with respect. Um, and also that we demanded respect as well that you know we weren't gonna you know suffer fools, if you will. Um, so it was it was a great childhood. I, I never felt like at all that I, I needed anything. Um, but it was a little bit difficult in the beginning when I was young because I moved around. Um, it was hard to make friends or keep friends, I should say, because we were always moving. But a couple of things happened there that I would say were really important to me. One is uh, I got used to change because I was always moving around as a child. Um, And the other thing is that we lived in Thailand for Bangkok, Thailand for two years. And that was like, you know, I know I can totally empathize with people from another country, even at that young age who are, you know, we were the people from outside, if you will, and, you know, being in a different culture. So I learned to respect different cultures at a very young age. So, you know, it was a great childhood, a great learning experience. We settled down in, in Maryland by the time I was nine years old. And that's, pretty much what I call home outside of where I live now in Massachusetts. That's where my family is. That's where my friends are. So that's kind of what my my early years were like.
1: Right on. And so are you, do you have siblings or are you an only child?
2: I do. I have a sister, but I also have a, um, a cousin who, when his mother passed away, he joined our family. He was like a brother to me growing up. He came, he joined us when he was 13. So he was a ward of my parents. Yep. And we grew up together like brothers. So I had my, my natural sister and then I had a guy who, uh, my cousin who joined us, who, who was like a brother. I, I, he is a brother to me. You know, we are cousins by blood, but we're, you know, he's like a brother.
1: Yeah. Where do you fall in the pecking order?
2: I am at the very bottom. Uh, my, actually my cousin and I are only three months apart, so it's not like I'm full at the bottom, but my sister is four years older and she treats me like a child even today. Uh, she, you know, it's it, I've learned to just accept it.
1: (laughs) That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah. I'm always interested where I'm the oldest of three brothers. Um, it's just interesting to kind of hear the different dynamics of where you fall, right. Within the pecky order and how you look at, how you look at your family system, how you look at life. What held your interest outside of class growing up? I know you mentioned that obviously you were you were moving around a lot before the age of nine, but you know, as you were kind of growing up, where were your interests outside of school?
2: I was big into sports. I played football. That was my primary sport um since I was very small. Um, got to high school, played in high school, didn't carry it over into college, but uh found a I was able to extend that by coaching. I coached football for 15 years and um, you know, was really into it. I really uh took it very seriously. I was coached in coaches' clinics, I attended coaches' clinics, I studied strategy. I, I was really into, and still am today, into football, even though I haven't coached that in about five years. But I also play softball. Even today, I play on a, a senior league and a, and a standard league, if you will. Um, so I love sports. My daughter, my kids played. My daughter is the only one who still plays. She plays softball at the high school level, so I get to watch her play. But other than that, that's what I did. I did
1: sports. Okay, right on. Uh, who's your, team? Who's your uh, pro sports teams?
2: Uh, well, I'm embarrassed to say, but I'll say it. You're either a fan or you're not. I'm a Washington Commanders fan. Okay so uh there there's that and all the washington teams are my it's pretty easy you go across the board it's all the
1: washington teams those are my teams yeah it makes sense based on where you're at where you grew up it makes sense
2: i also though do root for the baltimore orioles not the ravens but the orioles because you know when we didn't have baseball in in uh, dc baltimore was the team
1: so yeah i always remember as a kid trying to find a cal ripton card that's what that's my uh piece of the orioles right
2: yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he's still a hero around there. I mean, he doesn't have to buy anything if he doesn't yeah. want to.
1: I bet. So I mentioned your bachelor's degree. You know, when so did you serve? Apologize. This is embarrassing because I don't know if you naturally only go to you go to school if you're already in the military there, or you can go if you're not in the military. But did you serve in the military?
2: I did. Yes, I was a. I went to the naval academy and graduated and became a naval officer.
1: Thank you for your service. How did you end up getting into engineering? What was the You know, what led you down that path?
2: Well, uh, I really, I really wanted to be a, when I was younger, I really wanted to be a marine biologist. I collected tropical fish. I still to this day do. And I thought it would be cool, you know, hey, diving in some warm locale, you know, getting in the, in the water, seeing all these cool fish. And then I found out they don't get paid much. (laughs) It's a tough living unless you got a PhD and you're maybe teaching in school. Um, It may be a fun life, but I did want to be able to pay bills and like eat. (laughs) I changed my mind as I I started to get into more sort of technical things. I, I, I had my private pilot's license at 17 and I started flying and I thought, oh, you know what? I want to be an aerospace engineer. So by the time I got to the Naval Academy, that's what I did. I wanted to be an engineer. So that's how I started out as an aerospace engineer.
1: Okay, right on. So how did the transition to the FDA happen? How'd you ultimately end up working for the FDA and it, for as long as you did?
2: Yep. So um, when I got out of the Navy, which was in 2000, I'm sorry, I'm, my mind is really going off there, 1994. So I was part of a group of people right after the Gulf War who was riffed, which is a nice way of saying I laid off, if you will, from the military. So if you're not coming back. <laughs> yeah. And fortunately, very different than the civilian world. You got like six months to figure out what you're going to do. So at that point, um, my mother, who was a an investigator with FDA in the Boston District Office, called me up and said, hey, you know, they're hiring engineers at FDA. My first response was, well, food, drug, where do engineers have anything to do with that? I, have no, I had no idea, honestly, that there were engineers at the FDA. And she said, well, there's a center that actually reviews medical devices. And so I applied with her support you know, she knew some people that could get the resume in front of the right people. And that that's another lesson there that sometimes it does help to know who you know. Yeah. Um. And I interviewed at five different branches. Out of those five different branches, there was only one branch that did not have any engineers. And that's the branch I chose to go to because I wanted to be the only engineer in the branch.
1: That's awesome. I and mean, the rest is history as far as just kind of progressing your way up through the ranks there. Correct. That was,
2: I would say, the first conscious besides saying I wanted to go, you know, into the Navy, it was a first conscious move you know, to decide how I was going to position myself. And that was to say, I want to be the only engineer in this group. And that's what I did.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And so what happened towards the, I mean, I told you that the audience, you were there almost 20 years. How did you ultimately end up parting ways with the FDA and coming to the industry side?
2: I thought I'd be at FDA and retired FDA. Um, my time in the, the military counted towards FDA. So by the time I was, by 2013, when I left FDA, I had been in the government almost 27 years. So I had three years from a 30 year retirement and um, I was convinced it was a great position to be in at the FDA, a division director is the next level to monarchy you can possibly get at the FDA Um, and people tend to stay there. I still have people who were, when I joined the FDA in 1994, there are still people who are division directors who were there when I was there. So, I mean, it's a position that you can stay in basically as long as you, you know, perform and and do what you want. What happened was Biogen came, Uh, a recruiter from Biogen came and said, you know, hey, we'd like you to come out and work for us. And, you know, there's a combination product rule. And I knew that pretty much I had only a couple things I would leave FDA for, one of those being a good combination product rule. Had lots of device companies come after me. Uh, I wasn't interested really just being the typical device reviewer going to a device company. I wanted to do something different. Combination products were an area where I knew there was, there was not a lot of experience. Uh, I thought I could really make a difference there. So I chose to go to Biogen. It was a great company. That's how I transitioned out. And it was not an easy decision because i had so much vested in the federal government but i thought you know it's a risky thing in that sense but i thought about you know as long as everything lined up for me as far as what i thought was necessary to give me some assurances i decided to make that move and it was a great move for me i really i really did have enjoyed everything i've done in industry since
1: in hindsight would you have done the move again Yep. That's awesome. You didn't even hesitate. So that's awesome.
2: No, I, I would have done it again. And the thing is, I did not retire from the FDA. This is an important point. I didn't retire from the FDA. I resigned. So theoretically, if for some reason I wanted to go back, I could start up right where I left off and just finish those three years.
1: So you could basically come back with all the 10 years still behind you is what you're saying? Yes. Okay. That's awesome. You know, I want to kind of get into some of the, um, the details here as far as your leadership and your take on, you know, where things are going, etc. But we talked about some of the different roles that you've had with FDA. We talked about you came into the industry. You got to work on combination products. You're an executive now at a company. What pivotal roles or responsibilities can you look to where you really felt like, man, you know what? I'm really kind of hitting my stride. I'm ready for the next level. I'm ready to take on greater responsibility. Anything that you... See in your career, it's like that was the turning point.
2: Well, first of all, I think that experience I had at the Naval Academy and in the Navy was huge because the Naval Academy—I like to think of the Naval Academy as a leadership laboratory. You know, you don't really know who you are as a leader, and you kind of have to learn how to find your spot. Like, what is what is what makes you a leader? And one of the nice things about being at the Naval Academy is you learn that at a fairly learned, young age, even though you aren't yet a mature leader, you kind of figure out where you can do things. Like, what is you? In that role, mm-hmm. um, and that carried through to when I left and went into the you know FDA. I started out as a reviewer, so I was an individual contributor. They gave me a little bit more responsibility. I demonstrated I could take that responsibility, and then it progressed to branch chief, division director, and then eventually into industry, where I became basically an individual contributor again in the beginning because I was the only medical device regulatory person at Biogen when I joined. So for a year, I was by myself. Wow. So, but I knew I wanted to build a team, you know, having that experience going from, you know, this division director with some degree of status back to an individual contributor. It's a humbling experience in some ways, but it was good for me because I was doing the work again and only doing it from a regulatory affairs side, which is not the same as being at FDA. So I had to, you know, I had to put, get hands on, and that that role was really important for me because what it taught me right away is that people come to you and they just expect you to be the regulatory, not the subject matter expert. And when you don't have another person you can turn to and just bounce things off of, it's difficult because you know the decisions you're making, companies are making million dollar decisions. on. Yeah. So that was the first really big pivotal role I had. And then as I started to progress and, you know, I moved to Sanofi, I had the same thing bigger, but in a bigger company, each role, I tried to do something a little different. As when I got to Sanofi, it was sort of the bigger version of Biogen, but Sanofi was a big global company with lots of different affiliates and companies that were acquired. Biogen was kind of monolithic at the time. It was just one big company. Sanofi had a bunch of other companies underneath it. And my role was central in that we, my, my little team there, managed all the medical devices and and device side of combination products throughout Snofi. Globally, anywhere in the company, that was our responsibility. We were a team of as small as five up to as big as 14 when I left. So that was a really great experience. Each one of those roles brought a different dimension to my ability to do different things. And I tried to make sure every role I went to was a slight stretch from the one I left.
1: Yeah, I love that you say that. And I want to kind of come back to this transition you made from the FDA because there's two schools of thought out there from a company's perspective, right? In the talent perspective. One is companies want to, they salivate over people with FDA direct experience coming into their regulatory department because they're like, oh, we got an inside track. We know how they think. This is going to help us expedite. Then there's others who be like, no, that is not the mindset we want. We want to try and be in the gray area as much as possible and really try to be strategic without that kind of influence. How has your experience transitioning helped you and how has it maybe kind of hindered you, would you say?
2: So it's the first mistake I think people make, and I've had this, I've uh, talked to many people who've transitioned from FDA into the industry. It's hard to get over the we when you're talking about FDA now out from the outside, right? You say, oh, we did, no, no, you're not we anymore. That's them, but not on the negative side. It's just, that's FDA, now you're with us. Yep. So I learned quickly though, I did get over, I pretty much cleanse myself of that. So that's the first thing is getting over the mindset that you are not FDA. The second part of that is the concept that you're representing the, you're trying to, to you, what value you bring from being an FDA is understanding the mindset and how do you translate that into company action. And that's true of regulatory affairs in general, but specific to people who've come from FDA, what they're paying for From you is your knowledge of that team and how they think of the way the regulations are explained. The mistake a lot of people make coming from FDA is they cite regulations. I can read regulations. You hear, I can read regulations. You don't have to read them to me. I want to know from you, what are they thinking about those things? Yeah. That actually was not a problem for me. I'd never had a trouble with that because I've always thought in terms of the real meaning behind the regulations. I have to be honest with you, Mitch. In the, F- in, in the Navy, I was an ordnance officer. So my job was to make sure that we handled things that blew up. Okay. There were a lot of regulations around Don't do this. Don't wear a watch. Don't start a spark or else you will obliterate the entire world. I mean, it's really serious and you have to understand the regulations. I'm used to dealing with regulations and translating those into meaningful action. And that's what they pay you for when you come from FDA. They can read the regulations. They want to understand from you what is that knowledge that those people have inside FDA that helps us think through what we're trying to do here. And occasionally you would hear most of the people I've met when I got out of FDA were very respectful of FDA, even if they didn't know I came from FDA. There was a natural deference to FDA. There were sometimes I ran into people who were actually quite had a negative opinion of FDA and they would express that to me. And I would have to kind of in a nice way defend the people at FDA by saying, look, you know, they're people, they're not infallible. Yeah. Yep. And if you approach them from a reasonable, pers- reasonable perspective, you can get a reasonable response. But if you go in there like you've got all the answers, you're going to get a very negative response.
1: And I think what you said is a difference maker across the board in regulatory especially is there's people. It's, so I always try to compare it to like the police of the world where it's black and it's white or Hey, there's this whole gray area, and strategically, how do we get how do we move our company strategy ahead, but still stay within the lines of of what we need to regulation wise? And I think there's a big difference between somebody's like, here's the regulations, we can do this, we can't do this, versus here's the regulations, and let's try to figure this out of how to make it work, right?
2: Absolutely, and I always say, I mean, I, actually, when I when I interviewed at Pair, yeah, I, they said, hey, can you give us a presentation? And I, my presentation was navigating the gray. The whole idea was. The regulations are the regulations, but you know, there's laws, there's laws, there's guidances, there's regulations, there's all these abstractions of the law, which is FDA's way of saying, this is what, how we interpret it, but it's an interpretation, right? It's not black and white. So regulatory affairs person brings value by understanding the true meaning behind those regulations. There's an intent. And if you understand the intent, you can go a long way from what everybody else did to meet
1: your needs. That's awesome. So I want to get into this leadership element because you, I mentioned in the introduction, you have a history of building high-performing teams, you know, and kind of building them from the ground up. You've had the opportunity to interview a variety of people. He's had the interview to hire and and develop people. What do you think, what differentiates somebody in the exact same position who is a high performer and somebody who really is an average performer? Where's the difference?
2: So I'll answer that question and start off by saying that I believe there are two different, I call them tracks of people. The technical track, These are people you need because they really are good technicians in what they do. They can write submissions really well. They can, you know, do a number of different things that are very specific to tasking. And then there are the sort of higher thinkers in the sense that they are looking more at a strategic leadership role. And that's not to disparage the technical people because they are higher thinkers in their area. But these are people who aspire to be leaders. And the thing is, not everybody should be a leader. Yep. They may want to, but they, they may, maybe they shouldn't be. And the difference what to me, what makes a, a high performer in either role is the difference between a problem finder and a problem solver. And I always say, look, hey, you wonder why, you know, I, I used to have members of my team or even other regulatory affairs people that I would hear complain about cross-functional members. You know, I keep telling them, don't do this. Don't do that. And my thinking is, and what I would tell my team is, well, what was your offer for a suggestion on how to solve the problem? Did you just hit them with a problem and say, that's a problem, you shouldn't do that? Or did you say, this is the way we can approach that? Cross-functional thinking is makes your team stronger. So if you have an open mind and you can think about, if I see a problem, I'm going to think about how to solve it. If it's not in your scope of responsibility in terms of you don't have the resources, you don't have the management authority to fix it, you should bring it to the people who can and then maybe you know offer a thought and they can either accept it or not. But to me, what I don't want to hear is a problem and then you don't have a solution for it or haven't thought of a solution for it. I'm even okay with, you know what, I haven't figured out how to work this yet, but I'm thinking about it.
1: Be a problem solver, not a problem finder. 100%. And I think that's a culture element too, that you establish that culture. Look, if you're going to bring issues up, let's let's do our best to also take some spend some energy on what the solution is. So what's your definition of culture? And what do you do as far as building that out? Because there's company culture, right? That kind of comes top down and it spreads across the whole organization. And then there's functional culture too, within your own unit. So, how do you describe culture? And what do you do as far as going about building your culture? You
2: you raised a really <laughs> a really interesting point there. So, you know, without looking it up in Webster, this is my non-Webster dictionary definition of culture. I would say culture is the like explicit and implicit behaviors that people exhibit that demonstrate to you how you should act, right? Because culture is a reflection of the people inside of it and it's felt as well as seen. So what I've tried to do with culture is, and it was really interesting, and the reason why I said what you brought up is really interesting. In the combination product space, and I'm using that as an example, there's the device side of combination products, and then there's the drug and biologic side of combination products. Typically, what you find in these companies, especially large companies, um, Sanofi, Lilly, AbbVie, Biogen, you look around, you'll find these medical device regulatory teams that sit within this larger drug company or pharma company, and there's a subculture that exists. There's a drug culture, and then there's a device culture, and sometimes they use the same language and it's confusing, but the difference in the culture is sometimes related to just the type of product you're exposed to, but it's also the way the company projects down. The kind of culture I try to build my team is, look, hey, I'm not perfect. If you see something that you think we could be doing better, you should call me out on it, but let's always be respectful of each other People have differing opinions, but you know, you should feel comfortable coming to me if you think we're going the wrong way. Now, having said all of that, I also have to assert myself and say, I'm accountable for what happens. So you should not feel offended if I take your, if I hear what you say, I acknowledge what you say, and then I say, but I'm going this way. Why is that? Because it's me that's accountable to the my boss and I have to live with the answer. And that means that if it goes down wrong, I'm going to take the blame for it. I'm not going to point fingers and say, "Oh, well, you know, they screwed it up or whatever. I made the mistake. I made the decision. This is what I have to live with." And that comes from my military days where you don't get to point you don't get to point at your sailor for doing something stupid like going out getting drunk and starting a fight. Yeah. The boss comes to you and says, "Hey, what's going on with your guy?" And your answer is, "You can't go, well, he got drunk and started a fight." You're like, "I'll fix it, sir." That's your answer.
1: Yep. Yep. And what a great, I love what you said, as far as the accountability piece and helping people understand that everybody's got an opinion at the end of the day, though, you have to, you have to have the strength and the courage to make the ultimate call. It doesn't mean that it's not a collaborative discussion. It means at the end of the day, somebody has to make a decision, right? Who's ultimately accountable for that decision, which brings me to my next question. People listening to the show, they're going to look at you and they're going to aspire to be similar to you and kind of rise up through the ranks like you did, be the head of, functional area or even the CEO of a company. What would you say are the key differences having the ultimate responsibility for regulatory and quality for that matter versus somebody who's perhaps a director, senior director, but still has another layer that that can support them?
2: I would say understanding what you're always at the executive level, the higher level of any, any step going up a little bit. You've got to be thinking about what your boss is thinking about. And you're always thinking about I understand where the organization is at my level, at the appropriate level. I understand what is needed from my boss, right? The immediate supervisor, but I also understand how he or she is reflected in the organization. I understand my function. I understand my colleagues' functions and how we fit together. The higher you go up in that organization, the further ahead you have to think. I'm building an organization. That's what I love to do. So I'm thinking, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? How am I bringing people in to help with my weaknesses? And how am I fortifying my strengths. One mistake I think leaders make is they build, they build their organization, they look at the weaknesses and they, they do a great job of patching those weaknesses. But then they don't bring anybody who also reflects a mini version of themselves. And I'm not talking about everything, but there has a similar strength. because if you leave, you're going to leave a hole in that organization. And so you want to have somebody there who has your strength too. And that's threatening to people sometimes, but you've got to be able to, to say, I'm not worried about that. Like I don't have that concern that this person is going to take my job because guess what? I'm building this organization to make myself obsolete eventually. It's a horrible thing people, you know, people don't want to say that out loud. But if you think like that, you act like that, you build a very strong organization. It has your strengths. It has your, you know, your weaknesses are covered by other people. And you're always thinking about what's the next step for that organization. That's the difference between the different layers of, I'd say, sending the ladder, basically.
1: You know, you brought up a really good point that I don't know if I've ever heard uh, vocalized before or even thought about myself. People always talk about, hey, you want to offset your weaknesses. You want to bring in people who complement your skill set. I've never heard it say you want to bring in a mini-me almost like somebody who's got similar strengths because if you leave or something happens, you're not leaving a gap. That's a really good point. Really good point. Um, And then the thing about the intimidation. Yeah, I always say. The sign of a great leader is to develop people who can go off and, and surpass them in one way shape or form, or promote them to go off and do great, to be able to spread their wings, and I'll sometimes get these people who are stuck in their this ego uh, mindset or they're intimidated, and they almost want to keep people down because they don't they don't want that. So. Like you said, some people are made to be leaders. Other people kind of struggle a little bit. What advice do you have? Because I always bring this up on the show. There's people out there striving to be a VP that or an executive of a company in one way, shape, or form, and it's never going to happen. It's not. There's other people who, for some reason, innate ability right time right place whatever it may be they make it happen what advice do you have for those who who are trying to do what you've already done
2: uh, i'd say for you know for regulatory affairs let's just talk about that for a moment you have to have i think a good stem foundation that isn't to say people with a history or an english background aren't going to be successful in regulatory affairs because that brings skills to the table too but you need to be able to understand the technology well enough that you can explain it to a regulator and you need to be able to explain it in a way that doesn't sound too, you need to be able to explain it in a way that correlates with the strategy that you're putting forth. So, There's one way to explain, you know, you can take what piece of technology you can look at it and one person can explain it one way and another person can explain it a different way. But really what matters most is that it's coherent with the way you want FDA to understand how that piece of technology works, whether it's a biologic, a drug, a device or something. So having that ability to break it down on that level is really important. So having that a little bit of that science technology background is, I think, pretty important. The other piece of it is understanding that if you want to be in executive, that's great, but also understand what your strengths and weaknesses are and make sure you're addressing those. Just because you have something that's a strength doesn't mean you sit on your your laurels. You need to always be making sure that that strength is um, relevant. And as far as weaknesses are concerned, you just need to, you know, I call them opportunities for improvement. I don't like the word weaknesses, but you, you find things that you can do to challenge yourself. So Do not be afraid to take a stretch. When I first had, when I first went to PAIR, that was my first exposure to quality. And to be honest with you, I ran from quality as long as I possibly could. I mean, right next to regulatory affairs, quality is the next thankless job, probably more thankless. I I know that it's a very hard job and everybody, I, I don't like to use everybody, but a lot of people look at quality as a roadblock, a barrier to what they really want to do. Yep. And so I know that's a tough job and not that I wanted to shy away from a tough job, but I also know, again, I'd have to take a risk that I'm trusting the people that are there or that are knowledgeable, but I'm accountable for. Yep. So that's the stretch for me. Now I've done that before where I've, you know, I have count on the people below that work for me. So I, I took that stretch and I was willing to do it. And I think you're going to need to do that to be an executive. You're going to have to come out of your comfort zone.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, something I hear all the time on this show is the the ability and the the drive and the desire and the willingness to take risks and put yourself out there, even when you're not necessarily confident in what you're doing. What do you think, though, is the reason that one director, you know, continues to move up and another one doesn't? They might be very ta- both very talented in their own right, but what do you think is the difference maker? A lot of times.
2: Are you familiar with something called the Peter Principle? The which one? The Peter Principle. No. So the Peter Principle is the concept that people, and this is the simple, simplified version of it, people rise to the level of their incompetence. Now, it's a pretty negative way of saying basically that everybody has a, a top tier of performance. You know, you might get, you might, you might be a, a rising star and then you reach a role where you just, you know, you just average now. And it's not a failure of you as an individual. But some people just aren't, you know, you either might not have the right skills yet or it's just not the right time or quite honestly, it's just not you. Like you have to be in a role where you can be genuine about who you are yeah. and you can feel like you can grow into that role. You don't have to be perfect for it, but you need to be in a place where you, you feel like you can expand into it. There are sometimes a Peter principle basically says everybody's got a ceiling. You just have to know when you're right below that and stop. That doesn't mean you don't advance in that level, but for that particular type of role, you need to understand when you're getting up there. And that's really a blind spot for a lot of people.
1: Interesting. So some
2: people just can climb like that and it's like effortless. Other people, you know, they have to work at it, but they can get there. Some people it's just not meant to be. And people have a, and this was true when I was at FDA, people have the perspective that I have to go to the top. Like there's no other place for me to stop. I have to find the highest role and I have to keep trying to get promoted because that means more money for me. And it also means more prestige. And really what people have to find is how do I advance to the point where I'm still enjoying what I'm doing and I'm still
1: effective. And that's not easy. You speak so much value and so much truth there. And I think a lot of times people have this this vision of what they think they want but it doesn't align with what is natural, right? And I don't mean, natu- I don't mean that you can't develop skills, you can't get better at something, but we all have these natural inclinations and natural ability. And it's almost like, I love exactly what you said about getting right to the place where your ceiling is almost, and then just exploiting that as much as you possibly can to be the very best in that space. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Where did you learn that? I- I'd love to learn more about it.
2: Well, I learned it when I was in the military. And uh, the other thing that I'll say that's related to that there was this really simple saying that uh, really, I think it transcends the military. And it's three basic things. Know your mission, know your people, and know yourself. And this know yourself is what I was just talking about. Because if you know what you have to do, then you can, you can lay out a plan to do it. If you know your people, you know the right people to put on that task and how they work together. And if you know yourself, you know your limitations and you know how you can engage others to help you be successful. And I think everybody, everybody needs help at some point and you should be 100% okay with asking for help because most people want to help you. I think a lot of people get competitive and they're like, oh, if I ask for help, it's a weakness. Yeah, I have no problem saying, hey, I don't understand that. You're going to have to explain that to me again. Um, Yeah, it's just, and I had a a mentor. Well, he didn't know he was a mentor, but somebody who actually taught me that in a totally unintended way. Um, But yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of the way I think of, I keep those three principles in mind because it's very simple and easy, but it means so much.
1: Yeah. No, I love it. And a great segue. Is there anybody that you've gotten to where you are today, obviously by your own mirrors, but also there's been people I'm sure who have lifted you up and supported you along the way. Anybody in particular you want to give a shout out to that you feel has been really instrumental?
2: So the first thing I'll say is my parents. I mean, they are, they are, they've been there my whole life and they've, they've allowed me to be like, not give me the answer, right? They don't hand me the answer and say, here it is, son, just one with it. They say, you know, let me, let me, let's think this through. And it's allowed me to be, you know, a critical thinker. So that, that's the first people. But as far as my career is concerned, there are a lot of great people, people who said to me, I'm going to put you in this role, but you sink or swim. And probably a ton of people I could think of there. My office director, when I was at FDA, who promoted me not only to a you know branch chief position, but allowed me also to be the division director and gave me that opportunity to learn and basically said, you run your group. You know? If you make a mistake, if somebody comes to me and they're angry, I'm going to come talk to you about it. But basically you do your own thing. Um, And then, you know, the people who helped me when I left FDA went to Biogen, you know, my boss there Ann Dodds Ferris, I mean, she was great. She allowed me again to be independent and do my own thing. But if I had any questions, I could come to her. But I want to bring up one person who probably has no idea that he, he taught me something. And that was my dynamics instructor when I was at the Naval Academy. He was a really tough cookie. He had a, he had a nickname, his Nick, his real name was Dr. William Lee, but his, um, his nickname was Wild Bill. Uh, that was because he failed a lot of people. <laughs> and one of his things was he would come into a class and he never re- he never worked a problem never worked a single problem in class he would just put the assignment and talk all theory. And I'm a kind of person who needs to see things kind of worked out to really understand it. And so all of that is to say, I finally broke down. And this gets back to what I said earlier about asking for help. I was struggling. And by the way, more than half the class was struggling. Yeah. But I swallowed my pride and I went into his office hours and I said, hey, you know, sir, I don't understand what's going on here. Can you help me? Because he told us in the very beginning of the class, and I won't get into this in any more detail. He said, if you remember this, you're going to pass the class. Top of wheel moves twice as fast as the middle and the bottom doesn't move at all. That's all he said. And everybody looked. at each other like what was that but throughout the class he would build on things and he'd make these contraptions that never did anything useful they were just just there to show principles so i finally broke down i went to him and i said i don't understand this can you explain this to me and for two hours he sat down there and he worked the problems with me. something he never did in class and then i'm not kidding i went just like this oh my god the top of one was twice fast as the middle of the bottom doesn't move like it all just came to me at one time And after that, I had no problem with the class, but I had to, he was the kind of guy who said, look, you got to come ask for help. I'm not going to go seek you out because you're struggling. You need to come ask for help. And the other thing he said, one person said in the class, everybody was struggling and nobody was having, nobody had great grades. Other departments would curve their grades. And so I had roommates in other departments who had B's when they were getting 55s on their exams, right? So somebody said to him, Hey, you know, other departments are curving grades. Why aren't you curving the grades? And he said to us, He turned around dead pan and said, What do you want me to do, curve life? He said, I curve the grade. You go out and build a bridge and it collapses and kills people. That's on me. He said, So I'm not giving you a curve. You figure it out. And what that taught me right then was like, there's established, there's like a level of excellence you have to have. And you have to be very diligent, especially when you're working around products that can kill or injure people. So, like, he established that there's no, there's no curving in life. Like you got to really make it
1: work. That's awesome. What a great, what great advice and kind of a stone cold uh, realization of like, Hey, okay. One thing, you know, we get caught up in, Oh, well, the grade should be better than it really is because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, that's not really how real life works. And what a life lesson to teach your kids too. Right. I mean that, uh, yeah, absolutely. The thing
2: is at the Naval Academy, you know, we're competing against each other. Yeah. You know, you you choose what you want to do. You want to fly jets, you want to drive ships, you want to be a SEAL, whatever, based on your class rank. So these, you know, these other, we're sitting here going, these other people are going to be choosing ahead of us because they got a grade that really doesn't reflect what they yep. did. And he's like, hey, you're going to have to compete in life. So just deal with it.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome, man. What do you want people to say about you, Tony? When you, you've you obviously got a lot of runway ahead of you, but- One day you're going to retire. What do you want people to say at your retirement party when they're all there to honor you?
2: Um, Let's see. I think... Two things, if I if I could. One would be that I was able to let put people in positions where they learn more about themselves and they were able to develop. Right, they they did things they they didn't think they could do because I gave them those challenging positions because I put them in positions where they they had to sort of sink or swim a little bit and that you know I helped them think through things a little bit differently than they might have on their own. The second thing I think I would want people to say and this is gonna sound really like you know to the point like he he gives a crap. I mean that is I think probably like the biggest compliment I could get because that just transcends, you know, the work that transcends people. It's all about, you know, he cared enough to like put it in, you know, put the work in.
1: Yep. That's awesome, man. I can't thank you enough for all the nuggets that you shared with us today for being here to tell your story. I I know it's going to inspire a lot of other people. I want to congratulate you on what you've accomplished yourself as an individual, as a leader up till now, wishing you all the best of success going forward, obviously with all the great things at Windgap. Anything that you want to mention uh, before we exit the show?
2: No, I, first of all, I just want to thank you. I, you're doing like Great work, Mitch. I, I really appreciate it. I've I've looked through i I've, I've gone through the catalog and looked at a number of the different sessions and every one of them is great. So I appreciate uh what you're doing. The only thing, only thing I might leave people with is, you know, the most important thing is to like be genuine. You know, don't be afraid to speak truth to power. It's sometimes that hard thing to do, but you can't allow people to to make actions based on false assumptions. And sometimes that happens. And you might be the only one in the room, and I've been there before, where you're the only one in the room who really knows the truth. And it's one thing if they're going to make a a little, you know, small foible, no big deal. It's not going to really make it, but if they're going to make big decisions and they're going to really go down a path that's going to cost, you need to be the one to speak up and you need to find the right spot to do that.
1: Yep. Awesome. Again, man, thanks so much for being here. And thanks for being as as genuine as you were on, on the show today. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks Mitch.
0: Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content rich episodes, Log on to the AnthonyMichael Group.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.